Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. I'm also a proud graduate of the School of Stupid. Those lessons were hard. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 88, The Long Kiss Goodnight. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, if you are a returning listener, welcome back. And if you are a new listener, hello and welcome. Uh, I hope that you're all continuing to keep well. This episode, The Long Kiss Goodnight, is the final episode that I'm going to be doing on, well, cult favourite movies, essentially. And, you know, that gives me a bit of a sad face um, because I've really enjoyed looking at kind of cult classic movies in March. I've done Big Trouble in Little China. I've done Krull and Josie and the Pussycats. And um, and this one is similarly brilliant and similarly overlooked uh, upon its initial release. And let's be honest, Gina Davis should have become a bona fide action star after this. And she just didn't like it never happened for her um but obviously more on that in a little bit uh before we go into that i just want to remind you all that i recently announced a brand new podcast venture called rotoscoperama rotoscoperama is going to solely focus on animated movies it seemed like a good idea at the time and now i'm kind of wondering when i'm going to fit it all in but never mind i'm sure that i will do it um I'm really excited about it. I've got a few great guests lined up for that already. And I'm hoping to get that started as soon as possible. But, you know, it really does have to kind of fit into everything that I'm doing on the podcast and the writing and everything like that. But I am absolutely determined to get Rotoscoperama off the ground. And we'll see how that does, you know. Uh, Animation episodes always tend to do well on Verbal Diorama. The recent animation season was just a, a, a massive success, especially Coco. 
Coco was just a phenomenal success. Sort of looking at the end and like tallying up all of like downloads and listens and stuff. The number of people who listened to Coco, it was just phenomenal. All over the world, like people were really digging Coco. And clearly, I mean, that's obviously a Coco thing. Uh, it's also obviously a Pixar thing uh, because The Incredibles did really, really well last year as well. So maybe on Road to Scaparama, I need to look at some more Pixar. Obviously, that's kind of a bit by the by. I also want to say uh, a massive thank you for the amazing feedback for the episode on Krull. Because Krull is a movie that I really, really genuinely adore, despite recognising its multiple flaws. But, you know, you can love something that has issues. That's okay. You don't have to love something that's perfect. And and Krull, I mean, let's be honest, it's not perfect, but I really, really love that movie. And and yeah, I'm so glad that so many of you love it too. But we're, you know, going to talk about an assassin who has amnesia and doesn't know that she's an assassin. And let's have a listen to the trailer for The Long Kiss Goodnight. Hello, girls. Caitlin, come help me in the kitchen. Hurry up, because I forget where it is. That's her mom. She's got amnesia. <laughs> what if you couldn't remember your real name, your first kiss, or your last goodbye? I don't remember. Honey, you have an ETA on that carrot? Stow it. And then suddenly... I used to do this. I'm a chef. No! Without warning. Give me something else. Celery. Italian. Oh! All your memories. My name's Charlie. I'm coming back. Came flooding back to you. Even Charlie. Long time. One bullet at a time. I got movement on Samantha Kane. Good. I may have a lead on someone. They still have some of her stuff. <gasps> this man, he's going to help me find some things out. So we'll be safe. Your full name is Charlene Elizabeth Baltimore. This could be trouble. My name is Samantha King. No, 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 forget all that. I'm in the PTA. Then quit. You're an assassin working for the United States government. We have 24 hours. We find her and we kill her. Run for your life! Charlie Baltimore's alive, sir. Who are you? My name's Charlie. The spy. Back when we first met, you were all like, oh, fooey, I burned the darn muffins. Now, you go into a bar, ten minutes later, sailors come running out. What up with that? Honk if there's any trouble. Yeah, so Miss Daisy, I'd be honking. If you have plans for a calm, quiet evening. Cover your ears. Hey, should we get a dog? It's time to kiss them all. Good night. Samuel L. Jackson, The Long Kiss, Good Night, directed by Rennie Harlan. Samantha Kane, suburban homemaker, is the ideal mum to her eight-year-old daughter, Caitlin. She lives in Homestead, Pennsylvania with her boyfriend, has a teaching job she loves and makes the best Rice Krispie treats in town. But she's only been Samantha Kane for the last eight years and her life before that is unknown. She hires Mitch Hennessy, a cheap private investigator, to find out about her past, when she receives a bump on the head, she begins to remember small parts of her previous life as a lethal, top-secret agent, Charlie Baltimore. 
Her Charlie persona starts to bleed into her Samantha persona as her assassin past starts to catch up with her. As always, we'll quickly go through the cast of this movie. We have Gina Davis as Samantha Kane slash Charlie Baltimore, Samuel L. Jackson as Mitch Hennessy, Patrick Malahide as CIA Assistant Director Leland Perkins, Craig Bierko as Timothy, Brian Cox as Nathan Waldman, David Morse as Luke Daedalus, Joseph McKenna as One-Eyed Jack, Yvonne Zima as Caitlin Kane, Tom Amandez as Hal, and Larry King as himself. The movie was written by Shane Black and it was directed by Rennie Harlan. So let's start this story in the mid-80s as the 20-something Shane Black, with the help of his UCLA classmate Fred Decker, lands an agent from a script called The Shadow Company, which was a supernatural thriller set in Vietnam, which was never made. The agent landed Black with several meetings with studio executives interested in his screenwriting abilities, which then pricked up the ears of 20th Century Fox, who were looking for a script rewriter. So Shane Black's first script, some little movie no one's heard of called Lethal Weapon, was written in 1986 and sold to Warner Brothers. As well as this, he undertook accredited rewrites on the movie Predator, which he also had a small acting role in. At the same time, he and his college buddy Fred Decker were writing The Monster Squad, which I re-watched recently, and it's still ace. Expect that on the podcast soon. Uh, all three movies, Lethal Weapon, Predator and The Monster Squad, would come out in 1987. The success of Lethal Weapon meant that Warner Brothers wanted Black to write the inevitable sequel. His script, co-written by Warren Murphy and named Play Dirty, was incredibly dark and violent and was ultimately never used, but he still retains a story by credit on that movie, and ultimately Shane Black would walk away from Riggs and Murtagh for the remaining movies in that series. After the issues arising from Lethal Weapon 2, Black took a sabbatical for two years, before re-emerging with a spec script for The Last Boy Scout, which he sold for $1.75 million in 1991, followed by him earning $1 million for rewriting Last Action Hero in 1993. So basically, the Shane Black writing name became a costly commodity. While The Last Boy Scout wasn't a critical success, it did make money at the box office. And despite the box office failure of Last Action Hero, in 1994, Shane Black was writing a new spec script about a school teacher with amnesia who's actually a kick-ass assassin. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? When writing The Long Kiss Goodnight, which took less than six months, it was important to Black to write a female character that wasn't defined by her femininity, but who could still be feminine, while also being a badass action hero. It was a character that had to be a woman, and it was specifically a mother-daughter relationship at its heart. Once it was complete, the sale of The Long Kiss Goodnight attracted a bidding war between New Line, Warner Brothers and Columbia. Even Disney, who obviously are notoriously family-friendly, they expressed an interest too, despite the high action and violence. New Line would prevail, and the sale would not only net Shane Black a tidy $4 million, but it would also set records as the most expensive spec script ever sold at the time. It has since been surpassed, but other similarly successful spec script sales include David Cope's Panic Room, which netted him $4 million in 2002, Alec Burke, David Mandel and Jeff Schaffer's Euro Trip, which would net them $4 million in 2004, and Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, $4 million in 2006. The most expensive spec script of all time is still 2006's Deja Vu, which sold for $5 million. 
But anyway, back to that sale at New Line. So New Line already had a director and a star lined up, the then husband and wife team of director Rennie Harlan and actor Gina Davis. At the time, Harlan and Davis were soon to start work on Cutthroat Island, but New Line wanted to fast track The Long Kiss Goodnight into production. Um, spoiler alert, that obviously didn't happen. Uh, Cutthroat Island did indeed come first due to contractual obligations and the issues on that movie, including but not limited to the chaotic production, the demise of Carol Co, and the fact it lost a hell of a lot of money, kind of deserve an episode all to itself and it is on the big list so chances are that an episode on Cutthroat Island will happen at some point. But you know, from my point of view, it's a movie I have a lot of time for. But ultimately, it's relevant in the story of The Long Kiss Goodnight because it essentially followed Cutthroat Island for both its director, Rennie Harlan, and its star, Gina Davis. And it may have possibly contributed to The Long Kiss Goodnight's box office returns too, but more on that a bit later. Rennie Harlan had directed big action movies in the past, notably Die Hard 2 and Cliffhanger. So he had a penchant for high-octane action set pieces and explosions. And once he got around to working on The Long Kiss Goodnight, it was almost a given that the movie would be a huge visual effects-laden movie, with emphasis on impossible stunts and action that defies the laws of physics. It's worth noting that Shane Black's original script, a lot like his original Lethal Weapon 2 script, is a lot more dark and violent. It also called for the death of Mitch Hennessy, but again, I'm going to come back to that because clearly Mitch doesn't die in the final movie. But it's also important to note that the action set pieces and explosions and everything that goes off in this movie weren't exclusive to director Rennie Harlan. Uh, Shane Black's script did actually include all of this as well. So it was the perfect kind of coming together of writer and director on this shared vision for the movie. Obviously, speaking of Mitch Hennessy, uh, Shane Black had Gina Davis in mind for the role of Samantha. Mitch wasn't written for Samuel L. Jackson. Gina Davis was asked in an interview with Arts Beat LA about whether Mitch was written with a black actor in mind, and she confirmed it wasn't. Uh, and it was simply a case of hiring the best actor for the part in Samuel L. Jackson. Gina Davis and Samuel L. Jackson, they've got fantastic chemistry. Um, and remarkably, there's no romantic subplot between the two, apart from when Charlie tries to seduce Mitch to essentially destroy Samantha's happy family life. When you hire Samuel L. Jackson, you know you're going to get quality. And, and what I love about this particular role for him is the fact it's a, a gender role swap in that he's happy to essentially be the damsel in distress, happy to wait for Charlie to rescue him. And he's also a bit of a down on his look chancer who, let's be honest, has the best wardrobe in this movie. He is looking sharp all the way through. I would just love to get together some images of Samuel L. Jackson and how sharp he looks in this movie. Because if that doesn't make you want to watch this movie, I mean, I'm hoping if you're listening, you've already seen it. But if you are listening and you haven't seen it, his clothes in this movie are, it's the best that Samuel L. Jackson's ever looked. And I'm, I'm putting it out there, the best he's ever looked in a movie. The other thing I really like uh, about the partnership between the two is the fact that Samantha or Charlie, and just, just on a by note, I'm going to be calling the character both Samantha and Charlie throughout the episode, just to add to additional confusion. But I'm going to try and limit it to when the characters behave in the way that they behave. So if it is the Charlie character, then I'll try to refer to her as Charlie. If it's the Samantha character, then I'll try and refer to her as Samantha. But, you know, it's interchangeable, really, because essentially they are the same person. They are both Charlie and Samantha. But what I really like is the fact Samantha doesn't take 
any rubbish from Mitch. You know, she calls him out for catcalling a woman who's essentially just minding her own business. It's actually a bit of a shame that more men haven't seen this movie and, and sort of jotted that note down because catcalling, it, it's not okay, guys. It's just not. Anyway, back to The Long Kiss Goodnight. So The Long Kiss Goodnight started filming in January of 1996 in various locations in Ontario, Canada, including on Dominion Street in Uxbridge, which was the location of Samantha and Hal's house, and at the historic Windermere House in Muskoka. While filming the exterior of Windermere House, a fire started inside the property, which destroyed the house, leaving only the stone veranda intact. It was supposedly caused by the heat from the lights or a short circuit in the cabling, but after an investigation, no cause was ever determined. Uh, Windermere House was later rebuilt and it reopened again in 1997. One of the reasons they were filming uh, at Windermere House was because it was situated next to a large pond. And obviously the pond was frozen. And Gina Davis did her own ice skating on that frozen pond. And the plan originally was for her to do a double axle and shoot the men chasing Mitch in the car whilst upside down in midair. Which, <laughs> I mean, it would have looked very cool, A, and B, it would be very in keeping with the bombastic, ridiculous tone of this movie. Um, but the idea was scrapped when they realised they'd need complex cabling, that it would essentially look like Gina Davis was on wires, and there was basically no way of stopping it from looking like she was on wires. Walter Klassen, who opened Walter Klassen FX in 1988 and had worked on To Die For and Tommy Boy, developed three stunt deer for the scene where Samantha hits a deer and swerves off the road. So they had a standing deer with a mechanical head, a floppy deer to be launched off the car, and a full mechanical deer with opposable legs. So as Samantha is driving towards the deer, it's the standing animatronic. As the deer lands on the bonnet and kits out its legs, it's the full mechanical deer. And then the floppy deer is launched off the car and into the snow. It's a really important scene in the movie for Samantha and for Charlie, as this is really the first time we see Charlie. And it's also the first time we see Charlie doing what needed to be done to put the injured animal out of its misery. And it's a really important scene because it's unlikely that Samantha would have done that. This is the scene that contains the re-emergence of Charlie Baltimore. Other notable stunts include the scene where Samantha is chopping carrots, which is cleverly edited to look like Gina Davis is chopping them. However, it's a seamless morph between a real-life chef and Gina Davis's face. It's worth noting that Gina Davis did most of her own stunts. She trained extensively in the handling of all the weapons that Charlie uses. Stunts she did herself include the water wheel, jumping out of the window, using a corpse to pulley up some Christmas lights and jumping on a moving tanker. She even walked through the snow barefoot to kill the deer, which honestly sounds like the worst stunt out of all of them, except maybe the water wheel. Now, if you've listened to the A League of Their Own episode, um, which I will be recommending at the end, it's episode 43, but I will be recommending it, you'll know how much love I have for Gina Davis. And I mean, this movie is kind of no exception, really. It's a movie in which she gives two completely different performances and actually three, thinking of it, if you count the amalgamation of Samantha and Charlie at the end. Sam Lee, Chamantha. <laughs> anyway, um, so the woman at the end of the movie is both Samantha and Charlie. And not only is this a layered, interesting duo of characters in a genre that never necessarily served female characters especially well because they were normally just love interests, uh, obviously, both the characters are women, and they're also played by a woman who, uh, at the time, is essentially my age, which <laughs> just <laughs> a 
makes me feel very ashamed about my life choices. Despite Shane Black's assistance, it would have been very easy for anyone to pick up this script and change this character into a man and essentially gender swap this role into the role of a man. Um, and I think the fact that this movie doesn't do that is remarkable. But also the fact that it would have been so easy to do just because the action heroes of the 90s, you know, if you think of Bruce Willis, Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, they were all kind of, you know, big muscle bound manly men. It would have been easier to hire a younger woman, you know, a woman in her 20s. Maybe she'd had her child quite early in life. But no, you know, we get a fully developed pair of characters from one actor in the prime of her life and her career in her late 30s with all the swag and confidence of a woman who knows her own mind you know despite the fact that in the movie Samantha doesn't really know hers I mean it's one of the many things that this movie has going for it and this movie has a lot going for it I am not really going to say anything bad about this movie because The Long Kiss Goodnight is a stone cold classic and I think one of the main reasons for it being a stone cold classic is Shane Black in his kind of typically witty and acerbic script which is wisecrack heavy and it really does feel like this part was written specifically for Gina Davis because I don't think anyone else at the time you know and I'm talking male or female could pull off the same levels of charismatic trained killer with this sardonic snark while also portraying the sort of mum that you would find at the local bake sale. Gina Davis Get yourself a girl who can do both, and she can do both. So Samantha is described as having a, a sort of retrograde amnesia. And amnesia is an incredibly common plot device in film, usually depicted inaccurately, uh, according to neuropsychologist Sally Baxendale of the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery. She referenced this in an article for the British Medical Journal in 2004. She even mentions The Long Kiss Goodnight specifically, and I quote, In Hollywood, trained assassins have an unfortunate tendency to forget their vocation. And in both The Born Identity, 2002, and The Long Kiss Goodnight, 1996, the hunter becomes the prey after the onset of amnesia, unquote. She also comments on the trope of, quote, two head injuries are better than one at the cinema. One of the commonest cures for an amnesiac syndrome sustained as a result of a severe head injury is another head injury, unquote. Which is exactly what happens to Samantha. And I'm not really going to go into the born identity thing, um, but the born identity is incredibly similar to this movie on quite a lot of levels. But it's about a man. I'm not interested. I'm joking. The born identity is a fine movie, but it's not the long kiss goodnight. But in addition to Samantha's amnesia, she also has disassociative identity disorder, which is also sometimes called multiple personality disorder, which is another common Hollywood plot device. The Longest Goodnight isn't seen as a disassociative identity disorder film per se, according to an article by Peter Byrne, also for the British Medical Journal, but as an extension of the genre when the other personality assumes control of the body owing to the dissociative identity disorder. And I want to link to both Peter Byrne and Sally Baxendale's articles because they're both really fascinating. So I will put them in the show notes for this episode. Sally Baxendale does actually mention three films that she feels do accurately depict amnesia. And those three films are Memento, which is on the big list for this podcast, by the way. Sequian Erez. I hope I've pronounced that right. You know, my pronunciations are always a bit duff. And Finding Nemo. 
And you wouldn't expect that a film like Finding Nemo would be deemed as an accurate depiction of amnesia, but according to Sally Baxendale, it is. So there you go. <laughs> you learn something new every day on Verbal Diorama. And obviously the name Sam Kane is an anagram of amnesiac. So this was all very cleverly set up and planned from the start. But without Rennie Harlan, there's no Gina Davis. And without Gina Davis, there's no Rennie Harlan. And it irks me so hard that this movie didn't do better and isn't more well known. Obviously, more on financials and stuff as always later. But the fact that this couple were married at the time means that this is essentially Rennie Harlan showing his appreciation for what his then wife could do. Because this is Gina Davis's movie completely. And I think, you know, let's just ignore the fact that a couple of years later he had an affair with his secretary who gave birth to his child and Gina Davis quickly divorced him. <laughs> because this is a really fantastic partnership. It's almost like a bit of a fantastic three-way, really, between the director, Rennie Harlan, the star, Gina Davis, and the writer, Shane Black. They're all firing on all cylinders in this movie. I've seen it described in some sections of the internet as Rennie Harlan's masterpiece. And to be honest, as much as I love Deep Blue Sea, and I really, really do, I would actually lean towards this being the best Rennie Harlan movie. Come at me on social media if you disagree. But I really do think it's the best movie that he's ever done. And considering this is Gina Davis's movie, it made me think, actually, you know, ignoring the fact that this movie isn't as prevalent sort of when you think of 90s action movies, it made me question, you know, why don't we relish Samantha or Charlie as a character as much as we do someone like Sarah Connor or Ellen Ripley? I have looked at quite a lot of online lists of greatest female action stars. We see lots of Angelina Jolie, lots of Charlize Theron, Scarlett Johansson and Sigourney Weaver. And as we should, because they are all fantastic, but not so much of a mention of Gina Davis as Samantha and Charlie, which obviously is a role unequivocally written with a woman in mind. It's one of the many, many reasons why I really wanted to talk about this movie, because it feels both somewhat unknown and forgotten. Uh, despite the many reasons why it shouldn't be either, you know, despite it being set at Christmas. Um, it's never the Christmas movie that you put on. And despite being a fun action movie, it's never the action movie you put on. And why is both of those things Die Hard? <laughs> Genuine question. And, you know, I love Die Hard as much as the next person, but I'd argue this is just as good as Die Hard, even without the inimitable Alan Rickman. I mean, the bad guys in this movie, you know, Craig Bierko is Timothy was never going to be the next Hans Gruber. Um, but he does have this really interesting quality about him. And it's also like a stark reminder of how dangerous, good-looking, charming men who are actually sociopaths can be. You know, in one scene, he's convincingly trying to chat Samantha up, acting all like suave and sophisticated. You know, he's got a nice smile. He's a good-looking guy. A bit later on in the movie, he finds out Caitlin is his daughter, and because he's genuinely a murderous sociopath, he couldn't care less about the information. You know, and he condemns his own child to die in a freezer with her mother. Literally the worst of the worst. And yet, you know, in this movie, you kind of initially give him a bit of a pass because he's a really good looking guy. And then you realise that basically we've been conditioned through Hollywood movies to believe that bad guys tend to be ugly and good guys tend to be good looking. 
Um, and in this movie, the really good-looking guy is the bad guy. And it's one of the things that I really, really love about this movie. I want to talk a little bit about Caitlin. Because Caitlin, as a child in an action movie, is basically going to be the character that gets kidnapped uh, only for the mother to try and find her. And we know that this is what's going to happen. But also, what's really interesting about Caitlin is she is the force behind this eventual amalgamation of Samantha and Charlie. Caitlin helps Samantha control her vicious Charlie side and for Charlie to kind of gain the tender mothering soul of Samantha. It's Caitlin who's been at the mercy of some of Charlie's more acerbic taunts. And eventually, Caitlin is the one that saves the day with hidden matches. And the scene in the freezer is, I think, another incredibly important scene because you finally see these two independent characters of Samantha and Charlie finally coming together because it's the Samantha side that shows the love and protection of her daughter and it's the Charlie side that basically is like, you are not going to get away with this. And when she tells Caitlin, you're not going to die, baby, they are. You know that they're going to die. You know. Because it's Charlie Baltimore saying it. And this is one of the things that I think a lot of people underestimate about this movie. And that is just how clever Gina Davis is with her portrayals of both Samantha and Charlie. And that even looking like Samantha and dressed like Samantha, you can tell immediately when she is Charlie. And the movie does a really clever thing in that... It makes Charlie look like Charlie with the short platinum blonde hair and heavy eye makeup. You know that that's Charlie. But then towards the end of the movie in the freezer, you know when she switches back to Samantha again. I mean, Gina Davis can rock the suburban housewife look and she can rock the kick-ass assassin look. Gina Davis is an absolute superstar. And we all slept on Gina Davis for so many years. But she's genuinely that good. I want to touch on a couple of additional things as well, because this movie plays into a very 90s trope of framing Muslims for a terrorist attack on US soil, which I think hits home a little harder after the events of 9-11, when so many innocent Muslims were targeted because of the actions of the radicalised few. And just to add to the pot, that the fact is that due to budget cuts, the CIA planned the attack to get more government funding to stop, in inverted commas, future attacks. And I could just hear the conspiracy theorists' brains whirling right now, because I know that's one of many 9-11 conspiracy theories. But speaking of the attempted terrorist attack in this movie, the explosion at the end was done with a fifth-scale model nature of the bridge between Canada and the US. And like all of the film's effects, it was supervised by Jeff Oakham. It is physically unrealistic, but, you know, like with the movie's depictions of amnesia and disassociative identity disorder, this isn't supposed to be rooted in any sort of realism. The explosion in the hallway uh, at the start of the movie is a similarly great scene done by using a scale miniature hallway as a background. That is so unrealistic in its logic, but the fact that they shoot and then jump through a window only to shoot at the ice below makes it such a Rennie Harlan movie. Samuel L. Jackson gets blown out of a window by a fireball on a chair, Again, so Rennie. Uh, and the final explosion is peak Rennie. You've got multiple angle shots showing the explosions one after the other. Cars start to rain down from the sky. The back of the car gets hit by flames and it goes up. Just pure, unadulterated Rennie Harlan. <laughs> it's, just, it's so Rennie. Might as well be the tagline for the movie, but in the best possible way, because it's 
got all the hallmarks we'd expect from someone like Shane Black, a Christmas movie, private detective, buddy pairing, precocious child, as well as being an over-the-top, typical Rennie Harlan, high-octane, low-realism action flick. You know, in many ways, this movie is absolutely perfect for a Saturday night popcorn experience. It's just really sad that it's actually not available anywhere. I actually own this on DVD, but I don't think it's on any streaming sites here in the UK, which is really, really unfortunate because it absolutely deserves to be. Let's segue into this episode's obligatory Keanu reference. So this is where I like to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves, just for fun and just because it's Keanu Reeves. I had a bit of a think about this one because, I mean, I think it would be quite easy to link this movie to speed in a sense that it's a similar 90s high-octane explosions, high-action movie, Uh, not quite as bombastic as this, but, you know, I think that would be a bit too obvious. So I wanted to actually link it to a movie that Keanu did that's set in 2021, actually. So Keanu starred in a movie in 1995. It was a cyberpunk action thriller called Johnny Mnemonic. And Johnny Mnemonic stored sensitive corporate data in his brain at the cost of his memories. And I have seen Johnny Mnemonic. Uh, I think I saw it in 1996 and I've not seen it since. So I can't really remember it all that well. But it's a movie about memories and about losing memories. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to link that to this movie. I mean, I think in the general scale of would I recommend you watch The Long Kiss Goodnight or Johnny Mnemonic? I'm sorry, Keanu, it would probably be The Long Kiss Goodnight. But, you know, I have to think of a different way to link Keanu every time. That is a rule that I've set myself. Uh, I try not to break it. Um, And so, yeah, Johnny Mnemonic. I don't think that's available on streaming services either. So the score for The Long Kiss Goodnight was by Alan Silvestri. And like the movie, it's an awful lot of fun. I mentioned earlier about the character of Mitch, who was going to die in the original script. And test screenings of an early cut of the movie didn't go down very well because... Mitch Hennessy died in that cut of the movie and the audience basically said, you can't kill Sam Jackson. This would lead to reshoots in which Mitch would not only survive the several bullets that enter him, but would also be pivotal to the finale, saving both Samantha and Caitlin from the bomb and driving them across the border into Canada. As I already mentioned, this movie came out after Cutthroat Island, which was savaged by critics and flopped at the box office. And it's very likely that the release and reception to Cutthroat Island negatively affected the release of The Long Kiss Goodnight, which was on the 11th of October 1996 in the US. It came out the same week as The Ghost in the Darkness, The Chamber, Michael Collins, and at least seven other movies, all of which would enter the top 23 in the first weekend. Out at the time included The First Wives Club, That Thing You Do, Independence Day was still knocking around after 15 weeks in the chart, as well as The Rock and the first Mission Impossible movie. The Lock is Goodnight came in at number two in that first week after The Ghost and the Darkness, which came in at number one. Despite the number two entry into the first week in the charts uh, and a budget of only $65 million, The Long Kiss Goodnight would only make $33 million worldwide. Shane Black pondered on the idea of whether it could have been more successful had the gender roles been reversed and a man had led the movie. But like I say, he has always stated that it had to be a woman in the lead role. 
Critically, its reviews were mostly positive. Rennie Harlan considers it his favourite movie that he's ever made, as does Samuel L. Jackson. So there are a hell of a lot of fond memories that people have about this movie. It's just such a shame that it didn't do better. We may have ended up with a sequel had it done better. The last page of Shane Black's original script noted a sequel called The Kiss After Lightning. Obviously, it never happened and no details on the ideas contained within that sequel have ever been divulged by Shane Black. A possible sequel simply called The Long Kiss Goodnight 2 has been in the works since 2007, with Samuel L. Jackson keen to reprise his role and working alongside Rennie Harlan. The plot would be Mitch Hennessy taking centre stage and crossing paths with Samantha's daughter, Caitlin, as a young woman. Obviously, it's been 14 years and there's still no word on that. So you know now what I think of this movie. I love this movie. I think it's absolutely brilliant. I will happily watch this movie on repeat. I <laughs> genuinely would. Uh, there is nothing wrong with this movie. It's absolutely perfect. As long as you don't take it too seriously. But what do the listeners think of this movie? Um, so I'm going to pop on over to Patreon supporters and find out what they think. And the first patron to give their thoughts is Andy from Geek Salad. And he says... How this movie hasn't become a Christmas standard like Die Hard is beyond my realm of comprehension. Gina Davis is such a convincing badass, unlike her turning cutthroat island also directed by her then-husband, and turns on the intensity and sex appeal in ways that I would never have thought possible before this. Then there's Samuel Jackson, who is at the top of his game in this movie, and thanks to him, I have my go-to line, whenever you make an assumption, you make an ass out of you, and I'm sure. I always like to give a little plug for the patrons and Gandhi features on quite a few of them. He comments all the time and I really appreciate that because I always know I can rely on him for some form of comment. And obviously, if you don't know who Geek Salad are, you can find them in your podcast app of choice. They are basically the all-encompassing geek podcast. They've been going for like 12 years. They do movies, games, TV shows, music, comic books, literally everything to do with geek, they cover. There is a fantastic episode that they've done on the movies of 1990, which features moi. They've done over 200 episodes, so make sure you check them out. Right, moving over to the rest of social media, uh, as we basically throw them through a hole in the wall into their respective Twitter, Instagram and Facebook treehouses. And thinking of it, tweeters do belong in trees, so it kind of all makes sense. So we'll start with Twitter, and we'll start with at in who said, It seems like every year, around Christmas in particular, the film gets discussed more and more, and honestly, it deserves it. It perfectly encapsulates where action movies were going around the mid-90s, mixing charm, dialogue, and well-executed set pieces. Davis rocks. 8,432 out of 10,000. And this is Sam from Movie Reviews in 20 Qs, and what their podcast does is they rate movies out of 10,000. Or if I go on the podcast, which was very recently, I rated a particular movie that I talk about quite a lot as 2 million out of 10,000. So I was a little bit naughty, but Sam and Liz allowed me to do it. Uh, (laughs) So that's why he's given it a score out of 10,000. I assume this is a compliment sandwich for you, Sam. Let me know specifically. At Beaver Does said... 
I sing to myself to remember things just like Samuel L. Jackson in this fantastic movie. So what I really need to do is go da 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 da. I sing to myself da 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 to remember things just like da 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 da. Samuel L. Jackson da 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 in this fantastic movie. But I'm not going to do that because that would be ridiculous. At Wulong Talk said. One of my favourite Shane Black scripts, Gina Davis absolutely kills, Sam Jackson does Sam Jackson things, and the direction is tight and gripping, severely underrated action flick. At Oral underscore MFC said, One of Shane Black's most underrated gems, Gina Davis kills both sides of her role, but once her hair changes, the movie really takes off, and like most Sam Jackson movies, has a ton of great quotes. At Black Girls Do Stuff said, Yes, we talked about this during our Christmas movies episode. We love it and Gina Davis over here. At Beelzee Agnew said, With the long kiss goodnight, Shane Black not only delivers one of his best scripts, but looks into an actress who both dives headlong into the bloody knuckled action and chews through his pulpy dialogue with aplomb. And Davis is ably matched by Samuel L. Jackson in a role that perfectly suits his hard look everyman acting chops, as well as his charismatic movie star badassery. In the hands of a better director, Harlan is decent but no Richard Donner, or Shane Black as we'd find out later, it could have been an action masterpiece. As it is, it's still a dynamite ride with a shockingly soft heart and enough pyrotechnics for a month of Christmases. Which it really, really is. There's so many explosions in this movie. Uh, moving over to Instagram, we have at Wulong Talks again. Clearly, Jason and Rich love this movie. I assume this is Jason. And actually, I know that he loves this movie because he and I have talked about it in the past. Uh, and he simply says, looking forward to this. Well, thank you. Uh, I hope this episode lives up to anything like The Long Kiss Goodnight, uh, at Contrarian Prime said, Blind spot for me. And at Jmore7j just simply says, Love. Which, again, perfectly summarises this amazing movie. There are none on Facebook this time around, but a massive thank you to everyone for providing your comments on The Long Kiss Goodnight. I'm always so grateful to everyone for getting involved. The Long Kiss Goodnight feels so very much like a 90s blockbuster action movie that it pains me it never became one. We got a badass, vulnerable, smoking hot, feminine action heroine before we were allowed to have them. Samantha and Charlie's stakes were personal and Gina Davis yet again proves she's one of the most versatile and interesting actors. Whether it's in a period baseball movie playing a goody two-shoes or a loud explosive action movie playing two characters. Shane Black's script and the banter between Davis and Jackson is unrivaled. Except maybe for Shane Black's later works like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang or The Nice Guys, which I've done an episode on, it's episode 52. The Long Kiss Goodnight feels before its time and a precursor to what would come after it. But what would come after it isn't enough for me because we deserve our female heroes to be like Charlie Baltimore and Samantha Kane. We need our female characters to be more than just a trope, more than just a damsel in distress or the romantic angle for the lead main character. The Longest Good Night gave us a character that encompassed and blended a nurturing mother with a competent assassin. The idea that women, you know, can be both of those things, that can have a multitude of other character traits and be in control of their own destiny, was clearly not marketable in the 90s. But where are these characters today? This is what I want. The closest we've got recently, uh, probably Lorraine Broughton in Atomic Blonde, uh, that's episode 69, by the way. But also Rita Vratasky in Edge of Tomorrow, episode 20. But overall, characters like this are still few and far between. And if The Longest Goodnight proves anything, it's that women can do this. We are perfectly competent. 
like I said earlier, get yourself a Gina Davis who can do both. There are plenty of female actors in the world who could do a role like this. We just need to provide them with the material. The Long Kiss Goodnight is one of the best 90s action flicks that most people have probably never seen. If you're listening to this, that probably means you have. Don't make assumptions that your friends and family haven't. Lend it to them, show it to them, because you know what Mitch says about making an ass out of you and umption. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on The Long Kiss Goodnight. And if you do like this episode, please take a moment to give a five-star rating or a review in something like Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser. It's completely free. It takes two minutes of your time. There are links in the show notes to help you get to those places if you need them. And as always, a massive thank you to the people who have recently given wonderful five-star ratings for this podcast. The other thing you can do, tell your friends about this podcast and you can help spread the word about Verbal Diorama. If you did like this episode on The Longest Good Night, you might also like the following episodes. Episode 43, A League of Their Own, because it's more excellent Gina Davis. And it is, and I quote, the best sports movie ever made. Episode 52, The Nice Guys, more excellent Shane Black. Very typical of him. Excellent pairing of Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe. A lot like this movie with the excellent pairing of Gina Davis and Samuel L. Jackson just work so well together and just make the movie so much fun. And episode 69, Atomic Blonde, because we need more excellent badass female assassins like Charlie Baltimore and like Lorraine Broughton. But before we do, check out Atomic Blonde, because if you enjoy this movie, then I guarantee you will enjoy Atomic Blonde as well. As always, give me feedback. Let me know if I got my episode recommendations correct. I mean, I probably do because, you know, they're my episodes. I know them. But let me know anyway. So the next episode of the podcast is episode 89. We are so very close to 100 episodes. I can almost touch it. For episode 89, we may be going out of cult movie month. But in my opinion, the hits just keep on coming uh, because it's one of my childhood favourites. And it's also the most bangerang Robin Williams movie because <laughs> the next episode is going to be on Hook. It's obviously a classic spin and sequel on the tale of Peter Pan. And I guess Hook is kind of classed as a cult favourite in its own right. But you are going to have to wait an extra week for Hook because I'm going to be taking a break at the end of March uh, slash start of April. But I promise you Hook will be worth the wait. If you want to follow me on social media, I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd. If you are keen to support the show financially, you can do so at patreon.com slash Verbal Diorama. But like I say, as always, you are under no obligation to do so. I am, however, incredibly appreciative of the patrons that I do have. I like to shout them out every episode. I like to give them as many little perks as I possibly can. So as always, a massive thank you to the patrons of Verbal Diorama. They are Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristin, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Matt, Trevor and Scott. Big explosion goes here. Fireball. <laughs> I have a merch store. It's at teespring.com slash stores slash verbal diorama. 
there's t-shirts and hoodies and stuff if you want them you can email me verbaldiorama at gmail.com or you can pop over to the brand new website at verbaldiorama.com there is a little contact form on this website it's really cool but check out the brand new website i've been saying for ages i'm gonna do it and i've finally done it and it's really really cool it's very simple but i really really love the new website so please check that out and as always, a little shout out on the work that I do for Film Stories over at filmstories.co.uk and also for the magazine. As always, feel free to click on some articles. There's some really interesting stuff over on the Film Stories website, so make sure you check that out. And finally, I like a man who's always frank and earnest with women. Do I prefer frank or earnest? Well, it depends on who's got the bigger smile. Smile. I was talking about smile, you filthy buggers. Bye.